Tonight we've got a Wednesday webcast and we're really lucky to be joined by Sarah Brown and uh, standing in for Scott because Scott is, um, I have no idea where Scott is or what he's doing because he's always off doing something exciting and uh, he tells me but I forget. Um, so standing in as a kind of as a co-host and as a, a moral support for me, I've got Fiona Wells who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. Hiya Fiona. Hello. Excellent. So tonight, we're, as I say, we've got Sarah Brown. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do and why you do it? Yeah. Um, so I'm Sarah Brown um, from Wrigley and Hall Solicitors um, slash the Adoption Legal Centre, um, which is our side baby that my team um, does. Um, so I head up the public team at Wrigley and Hall, which specialises in just adoption and kinship. Um, I specialise in the adoption side of that team um, and we advise um, all different kinds of people from foster carers, prospective adopters um, on many issues regarding adoption from adoption support, adoption applications, foster care applications and um, when families are in crisis uh, who have adopted. So um, yeah, we just want to help people out there as much as we can legally. Yeah, I mean, we've, we had you on, um, I think it might be three years ago. I think it was during COVID, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah. Back when we were all young and happy and uh, trapped <laughs> in our houses. And um, so, can you can you tell us if there's been any development since then in terms of the amount of work that you're getting, or is it less, more, or is it just the same? Um, the nature the, of the work. The families in crisis, I would say, is probably about the same, maybe a little bit more. Um, we're getting quite a few foster carers actually looking at adopting the children that are in their care. Um, we've had quite a lot of them in the last year um, since I've been back. Um, but in terms of families in crisis, um, there's always a steady flow of people that are coming to us. Um, either they're in crisis and not quite at disruption or they are at that disruption or they're seeking support to kind of prevent them getting to that stage. Um, but that is predominantly what we speak about uh, on a day to day basis with clients and, and people um, that are coming to us. Smashing. Uh, Fiona, you, I, I forgot to say at the beginning that you, you need to butt in because I just talk. So you, if you've got any if you've got any point, you need to just kind of shoehorn yourself into the conversation and take over. That's more than that's more than normal around here. Got it. Keep going. Though. Keep going. Right. Why do you find your feet? And um, yeah. so we um <clears throat> I'm part of a few different groups, Facebook groups and online groups. And what I'm seeing is more and more people having to refer to solicitors. And in terms of, um, I'm going to be careful with my words because I've got enough enemies, um, but seeing a lot of families feeling quite bullied uh -huh. by local authorities and finding themselves and, and sort of lots of conversations online, people going, should I get a solicitor? And people going, get a solicitor. Or people saying, oh, well, maybe not for this, but... Yeah, I would. And a lot of people speaking highly, not necessarily of you, just because well, I don't name solicitors, but they just saying. So is that is that your reflection? You know, as a solicitor, can you speak in those terms about bullying? Is that um, what's going on? I would say the first appointment that we have with clients is normally a case of us just listening and letting them rant because of the um the stigma that really that they're getting from quite a lot of local authorities really um so yeah I have a few that say they do feel bullied by the local authorities um or that they're just not being heard or that everything that is happening is being blamed on the parents um so that first conversation is normally just a case of us listening and saying right tell us everything um but yeah I would say there's quite a few people that come out there and say we just feel that we're being bullied by local authorities 
not not every single one um but yeah it normally gets mentioned within i'm same as al really um you know in many groups and and the feeling i get about the lack of honest working and you know with from sort of local authority to parents who are in crisis is has shocked me as a social worker, as a person who's adopted, and as a person who's in a you know who's got adopted children. I, I was mortified at the thought that actually have one, I have to fight for support. Mm. Also, two, I have to actually fight for the position that I'm in. You know, my big my big line in in the document that I wrote is I didn't cause the trauma that my children suffered. I mean, I may have added to it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm not singling myself out and saying, look, this was all caused by the people who came before me. What I'm saying is that the trauma that my children suffered can be mapped to their behavior. So why am I being condemned for not being able to manage that? Yeah. You know, nobody's put me into a training camp for four years and given me all of the essential and beyond superpowers that I need to, to manage children who've been through such significant trauma. So why, one, am I fighting for support? And two, having to fight to say, well, do you know what I mean? I, I haven't done this. Yeah. Or, or just that I can't manage. You know, I am I am in crisis. Um, and that's what we hear from a lot of people, um, that when they do go and ask for support, they're simply told, well, you're at fault here. Here's a parenting course. Go away and do it. Mm. Everything will be okay. Um, now, with the best one in the world, the trauma that these children have aren't going to be sorted by a, parent, a basic parenting course, which they, they are. They're not even therapeutic parenting. They normally just are the bog standard parenting course that you would give to anybody. Um, and we always, <laughs> we always roll our eyes, uh, me, Nigel and Tracy, whenever we get that phrase, well, we've been offered X, Y and Z parenting course, but um, we're not being funny, but that's not going to take us anywhere. And that's what, what clients will say to us. And we're in the same position that, they, they need more specialist support, but you really have to fight for that. Um, and even then you might not get it. We've had clients that for years and years before they've come to us have been asking for respite, been asking for psychological assessments, psychiatric assessments, whatever's uh, specific to their family. They haven't got that. That's led them to a point of crisis, which has led to them that children uh, being accommodated by local authorities. We then get to a point of care proceedings are issued again, um, obviously for the children and within those care proceedings we've got that psychological assessment but it's taken that whole process to get what they asked for years ago and I always say it's back it's a backwards way around of doing it because if you have that psychological report in the first place you'd prevent steps two three and four and you'd be in a very different some might not be but some families would be in a very different situation mm-hmm. and it, it does baffle me and I think most of my clients will say that and that's a word that I will say quite a bit it, it does baffle me it really does. Um, and a lot of them feel that they are to blame. Um, I don't get me wrong, recently I've had a, a few good social workers, really good ones, that have fully understood the trauma that the children have and the fact that it hasn't come from these parents. It has come from their early life experiences. Um, and when you get those social workers, it makes such a difference. It really does. And I'm not saying that it, those ones don't necessarily lead to a child being accommodated because sometimes they do because the trauma is that much. And if they are in a sibling group specifically, it might be that one child needs one-to-one care. And the only way of getting that is to accommodate them. But if you have a social worker that fully understands it, 
you're not only fighting the emotional side of things of having a child accommodated, but you're not fighting the blame game that parents are actually faced with a lot of the time. Yeah. It, it is really sad and I, I never understand it. I really don't. Maybe that's why I don't work for local authorities. Um, I work for um, our team, but um, I just don't get it. I don't. I don't get it either. And and I think as a social worker who tries to be as unoppressive as possible, I was shocked at how many people are going through this. How many people are being blamed for their child yeah. for not being able to manage somebody who a child who's violent, who's who's you know that the rules of basic parenting, which you know don't fit around our child. Yeah. You know they don't fit because they can't fit because they haven't had any and normal doesn't exist, but they haven't had any normality. You know, mm-hmm. trauma starts in the womb and it continues and it continues and continues. And if we don't treat it, it's not going to go away with just love. No, all your simple um, basic parenting course. Yeah. yeah, well, exactly. And, and you know, I, I knew I was in crisis years ago, so I went on all, all of them myself. So they can't mm-hmm. actually recommend anything. But the problem, I think, sometimes is the social workers. I am one, but it, we're, not tra- we're not trained in trauma. So yeah. how, how can we assess where the traumas led the child and the family to? So it's not about social workers not doing their job properly. It's about them not having the, the qualification to do that part of it. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's it. We all need this area, world of adoption to be more trauma informed entirely. Yeah. And I think a lot of even schools, head teachers, teachers, that they also need to be informed about it. Um, it goes across all professionals. Um, but what I think, obviously, we, I don't know whether you'd agree, but with social workers, you're so used to dealing with the birth parents and kind of safeguarding the children um, in the beginning that I don't think all social workers can then flip the mindset to say, actually, we now need to understand the trauma that happened in the beginning and how that's uh, materialised throughout their childhood. Um, And like you say, it's the lack of understanding for all professionals um, about this trauma. Can I ask... Yeah, you're right, the risk sensitivity to yeah. what the here and now is rather than the consideration of the past and because yeah. we have to as social workers treat the here and now and not the past that's the focus but with yeah. and then fostering and kinship care and sgo and all those other similar mm. similar areas there needs to be a consideration of what what came before and yeah. what mm. jigsaw puzzle telling me mm. can i ask um sort of People come to you, and we've got this context which you've kind of we've painted quite clearly. But then, if it's a difficult situation, bringing a solicitor in does that. I mean, on one level, on a legal level, that helps. But what are you able to do for a family that they're not able to do for themselves? Um, well, when normally when they come to us, they've asked for respite, they've asked for all the support, they've asked for the assessment of needs, they've got that. They, support might have been put in place, but it's more general support rather than specific. Um, normally when they come to us they are at a crisis point in the fact that they are saying look we are going to have to look at our child being accommodated um, and it's usually because of violence um, in most cases um, and they might have asked for the child to be accommodated before but they've asked the social worker and they're on the ground level and they've always just come out to say no I've heard it a lot that no we just it's not something that we do um, mm. and when obviously I have that conversation I say no actually it is it's in the law that they can do it um, but when I get involved, I don't, I can't communicate with the social worker. I have to go through their legal team, who is a solicitor. They will then take instructions from the social worker and obviously should be saying, look, here is the section 20. 
um, or Section 76 if you're in Wales, because obviously we have a few Welsh um, clients as well. Um, and um, don't get me wrong, they don't always then turn around and say, yes, we will accommodate them. Mm. Um, but then at least at that point, we do get into a negotiation. It isn't a straight up, no, we're not doing it. Yeah. Um, some some will immediately say yes we will agree this time and date we found a placement we'll do it some are a little more hesitant they will say well we'll provide x y and z support see how that goes then we'll we look at whether we need to accommodate some families that works for some doesn't and they will say actually no we're past that point now we do need to have our child accommodated um, and then you will get some local authorities who are quite well known for it that will just say no it's not our problem. Um, you're the parents. You have to find them somewhere, um, and that's normally where we get into a battle. And we have to, we have to give a deadline, really, to say, right, you need to find a placement by this time on this date. Um, and I always say this to my client. I would always be honest with them to say, look, this will be the last resort. We might have to give them a time and a date to say, look, they're going to go to school that morning and they can't come home. But and I hate advising that. That is always a last resort. But sometimes that is needed because local authorities just don't take the requests seriously enough. Um, they yeah. just push back and say, look, they're your children. You find something. Um, and it's really not helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm just listening, I'm listening to this, imagining I don't know all the things that I know about, you know, the lived experience and thinking this is a bleak conversation we're having, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's dire and to remove yeah. the needs of the children in that. And it feels like that. I think you, you mentioned it there that, it's gone so far beyond where it should have ever have gone. Yeah, and when we're at that point, it is normally they've come to us after months or even years of saying, if you can't accommodate, we at least need respite, and that's always been a no. We've then said sent letters saying, right, this is what we want, these are the reasons why we want it, we'd like a response by this time, we want it all done in a planned manner, everyone needs to sit down together, find the appropriate placement, and they'll just come back and say no. So then we'll say, right, another two weeks, we'll give you, we are serious here. And then it comes to a point there might be an incident that happens over a night or the weekend and they just come to me and say, look, that's it. We we just we need to safeguard maybe other children in the placement. We need to safeguard ourselves. We need to safeguard this child because although they're being violent towards us, we need to safeguard them because it's not in their best um, emotional needs, mental health needs uh, or physical needs that they are showing this violence. And they do need the support um, that they aren't getting, um, unfortunately. So like I say, it is always a last resort. And, we don't have to do it often, um, but there are the odd few that we have to actually say, right, we've exhausted all options now. I, know, I don't want to say the words that are going to come out of my mouth, but we're going to have to. Um, and some will go through with it because, like I say, an incident might have happened or it's just they need to safeguard themselves or the children. Um, but sometimes we have to do it. Yeah, it's bleak, isn't it? It is bleak, yeah. And like I say, it's, I hate advising it, but sometimes it is needed. Um, mm. And I always I always hate those days where we've given the deadline, you think, right, I know what's going to happen today and I'm going to have to have another conversation about it because it is deadline day in a way. And are we going to go through with it? Are we not going to go through with it? Um, but yeah, we always want to do it in a planned manner and obviously all the parents want to do it in a planned manner and it just sometimes it just doesn't happen like that because of the response that we get. Yeah. And I mean, it's really difficult, and it, I am conscious of just what an awful conversation we're having. Mm. Um, do you say out of if ten families come to you at, at desperation point, how many families do you see kind of progress to that awful conclusion? 
Um, in terms of giving, say, they're going to school this month, yeah. and, um, one, it, like I say, it doesn't happen often, but no, I've had a few recently where I've not done it for a very long time, and then I've had two or three recently where we've had to have that conversation. Um, so it, it, it happens like that. Um, but yeah, I'd probably say one out of ten. Um, I mean, but when they do happen, that, it, they all seem to happen at once. I'm, I'm quite <laughs> encouraged about that. Are you encouraged, Fiona? Yeah. No, I am. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and we always know I, it's normally the same local authorities that um, when clients ring us and we do know certain local authorities have a reputation and we do say, right, just to let you know, we're going to have a battle here. Um, we're, we're not going to hide anything from you. We're going to be honest with you, but we're here with you every single step of the way. Can I can I ask what if if you know if you could sit down in front of these tricky local authorities and mm. say you know your your families need you to do better mm. what what would the thing be at the top of the list for you to I think it would be understanding the trauma put that a different way say nicely to them <laughs> I think it would be to understand the trauma um, because a lot of them in their responses like I say will simply say well you're the parent it's up to you. They don't fully, even though we've set it out for them, look, this is what's happened in early life. This is the behaviour now. Um, this is obviously your strategy duty. They will still come back and say, no, we don't think that's right. And I would just say if they could understand the trauma and how that impacts um, the children throughout their lives, then that would be a starting point, I think. Because like, like we've just said before, not a lot of professionals understand the full extent of trauma that these children mm. have faced and how that then manifests itself. Because it doesn't always happen immediately. It might be years down the line. Usually when we see it, it's um, when the child is uh, transitioning to secondary school and the years that then follow after that. That is yeah. the kind of the curve that we see um, of the age group. I mean, yeah, we year seven. And what year eight is when I say to people, children hold it together for the first year, yeah. just about. The school yeah. is pastoral in the first year, year eight, and the wheels just within days. Come oh, off. yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry about that. No, no, no. Let's talk about something yeah, else. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think at that age as well, I think social media has a lot to answer for as oh, well. God, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. 100 million percent. Shoot me now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really do. Um, um, I think if we, Can I ask them, media, we would have less problems on a few of our Well, yeah, um, living in a lead box. Um, in terms of then some of these sort of these unicorn support plans that are out there, you know, like these mythical things, do you actually manage to get respite for some families? Yeah, and I'm always surprised when we do get respite because some local authorities will openly say that they don't do respite. And I know for a fact local authorities do respite um, because foster carers get respite. Um, but um, yeah, when we get, normally if we get a good financial package or we get respite, um, those are big kind of, wow, we've got these because they are few and far between um, because obviously it's their discretion, isn't it? Adoption support, um, finances. Um, so as long as they're providing general support, some support in a way, it doesn't need to be kind of specific as such. Um, then I suppose they will meet their tick boxes, won't they? But yeah, we do get some respite. Um, and like I say, sometimes when we've asked for a child to be accommodated, they might come back and say, right, well, we can give you so many days of respite a week. And for some, that's enough. Um, and some local authorities, like I say, will just say, what's respite? We don't do it. I think it's really important, actually, to, to break the cycle 
for some of these, some families. I, I know in my family, and I'm not going to go into that, but, but we've managed to break the cycle in one mm. situation, not through local authority, but just through network. And, yeah. and, it, and it was really amazing just having a little bit of respite from family members, how the behaviour that we were, we were mostly dealing with that was awful sort of came down a lot. And, and now I'm not seeing it as much from that child. You know, breaking the cycle is something I think local authorities need to open their eyes up to, that it is a thing. And actually, you know, children don't function because they've been through trauma, but actually they, they can learn to live a little bit differently if they're given the opportunity. As comparents, you know, if we're fully exhausted and in trauma ourselves, we can't breathe properly to manage situations. So mm-hmm. having that break the cycle moment is, is imperative and local authorities use that they would save money you know they would and that's what we always say that if you put this whatever support it is whether it's psychological assessment respite therapy if you were to put money into that in the first place you would save all that money later down the line when you're going to have to issue care scenes when you're having to find a placement for a child because if you save it in the first place by putting that bit of money out there then you would save that in the long run. Um, but what I would say in terms of providing the respites, I've had some local authorities say, well, if a child goes into respite, it's just going to confuse them even more. And um, that's just going to add to the trauma. Um, and we always try to say, look, well, like you said, if you break the cycle, for some families, that can really be the, the crucial point, really, that can prevent them from saying, actually, yes, we need to accommodate this child, where if they had that point, um, things could be very different for them you're breaking the cycle rather than breaking the family up yeah Mm. and and I think some of some of the issue I've had recently listening to stories hearing stories is is when these crises happens the family is broken it's not just broken from the inside it's broken up from the outside Mm. and I think that tears away any 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 good that was done bringing people together Mm. you know if 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 I didn't get on with my mum you know and then I didn't speak to her for a week. That would be awful. But yeah. but we were put together for a reason. You know, like my kids were put together with me and they are my children. And, and yes, they have a history. And they've, you know, they've got birth family, all the rest of it. But you can't break, you shouldn't break that up. You should spend money on trying to break the cycle first before breaking everything else. Yeah. And a lot of local authorities will say, we need to do everything we can to try and keep this family together and they're always the famous words that they come out with that our priority here is to keep this family together but their actions actually are the total opposite of that because if like if they were to break the cycle if they were to provide support uh, in various different forms then they wouldn't get to a point of this family breaking down because they would have prevented it um but mm. like I say that doesn't happen I mean, it's in some ways, it's an, it's a peculiarity the whole adoption thing because I think that we the culture of adoption, you know, going back to whatever nineteen twenty, last century, was yeah. that adoption was, this is your family, just go on and get away, get on and live normal. You know, we've got a new birth certificate, everything's, just go and play families, go play happy families. And as we've stripped away all of those children with less trauma, so I'm not going to say, you know, we've we've boiled it down to children. Every single child who is now being adopted has experienced the very worst of it. I'm sure there'll be a few exceptions, but regardless, they've still experienced the worst of it. And we've got a system where parents feel adoption doesn't work anymore in the sense that it's 
that that idea of just pushing people out into the world and go and get on with it because actually the the needs of the children are such that that is just not realistic is it no no i don't think it is um and the amount of people that say to me like i think the whole system is broken um a lot of people do say and they don't understand um how the system actually functions um i think adoption is changing like we said before in terms of like contact and um Mm. post-adoption contact it People are now are looking at adoption differently. Um, and I don't know where that will take things in a few years. Um, I had a conversation with my colleague yesterday, what day we on Wednesday, yesterday to say, look, I think things are going to drastically change in maybe not the next few years, but maybe in 10 years. I think we'll be in a total different um, playing field to what we are now. Um, I don't know what that will look like, but I think it will be different. Yeah. But I think um, mindsets uh, are changing, aren't they? Yeah, and society's changing, isn't it, yeah. as well? Uh, we did get some questions in, so I'm going to maybe intersperse, like like fairy dust, sprinkle a few questions over the conversation, and then maybe try and get us away from crisis, because I'm sure there's yeah. other things. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe people, I'm not sure why people get in touch with you, other than crisis. Um, so here's a question from, uh, I think it was from Twitter or, or Messenger, or, you know, just through the sky. Um, we've been linked, this, this is a, a prospective adopter speaking, um, We've been linked to a sibling pair, but now being told foster carer doesn't want to leave, sorry, doesn't want them to leave, so intends to submit a request to adopt them in court. The regional adoption agency opposes this and wants then the adoption to go ahead with us. So any idea how often foster carers are successful in similar circumstances and how long the courts might take to make a decision about this? That sounds like a complicated um, decision it does what i would say is uh foster care adoption is probably the second issue second highest issue that we are contacted about especially recently um in the last nine months we, we've had quite a few um a lot of foster carers um can be successful um no situation just because you're foster care doesn't automatically mean you're going to be successful or unsuccessful it, it really goes on the situation um mm. and its own merits really um, but for foster carer to make an application, the child has to be with them for a year. Um, they have to give three months notice. So there's your time frame to begin with. If they've already done that, then they could make an application. Um, if the child hasn't been with them for a year, that doesn't stop them making an application. It just means you have to ask the court for permission to do it. Um, I'd say most of my foster carers ones are, are on a year, I would say, at the minute. Um, yeah anywhere between nine months and a year but at that point we've not a final hearing in sight um so yeah you could be looking at what anywhere between six months and 18 months really depending on what the situation are if it's contested by the local authority if they're not in agreement with it because obviously they have parental responsibility for the child still the local authority um so the foster carers will have to have that conversation with the children's social worker with their social worker um, and they'll have to go through the assessment process um, which is usually anywhere between three months and six months, um, depending on, on the situation of the foster carer. Um, so, yeah, it could it could be lengthy. I'd say a minimum would be six months, yeah. but it's, I'd say it's more knocking on a year, if not 18 months, if they decide to go through with it. Um, they can go through the yeah. assessment before, before deciding to put their application in, um, but once your application is in, it depends who agrees with it, who opposes it, if both parents oppose it, there's obviously more issues to that. If local authority oppose it, then you have to look at whether there needs to be an independent assessment, which all then take time and add to the time frame. then. Um, 
But of course, the court's always considering in all these decisions, whether it's in the children's timescale to look at that. I mean, it's a pretty bleak circumstance, isn't it? And, and without knowing any details, it's hard to kind of make a call on what, what the best interests of the children are, because ultimately that should be the the measure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm torn with that question. It's a good question, though. I think it, I, I mean. It is. Yeah. Um, we and we've, we've been contacted from both sides. Um, so we've had clients that are prospective adopters in that situation that have asked for advice saying, well, what do we do? And then we've also had it on the flip side where the foster care is saying, actually, we have these children in our care. We know that they're going to be matched or there's a possible match. We don't want them to go. Can we make the application? Um, so we seek from both sides um, and advise them, obviously, according to the legal avenues that they each have. But it is becoming more common uh, foster carers wanting to adopt. Um, and especially the longer that they have the children, um, the more that they say, actually, they're integrated into the family. Um, and we feel that they are now our family. They see us as their family. And we now want to give them that permanence. Um, we're, we're worried how they would react going to another, um, to well, to prospective adopters. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a few um, of those out there at the minute. Yeah, I mean, we did that as a family. We, um, I, yeah, we were asked by the local authority to adopt them, and we got into it. It just turned into this incredibly complicated legal situation. Mm-hmm. We were just like literally stood with our face pressed against the window, going, "What yeah. the hell's going on inside?" Um, and we took legal advice, and they he kind of the poor solicitor just put his head in his hands. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, we've got them, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> but there was no doctors involved, thank heavens. Um, Fiona, would you have a question, or were you going to say something there? Well, I was both, but I'm going to go on to the question because it's more interesting. Um, how do you think that some of the judges you come across in relation to crisis, sorry, Al, back to crisis. Yeah. How do you think, the, the what's the general consensus about what judges? Um, I would say, what, in terms of how they are towards the parents? You, well, both, really. The, the, sort of the, the, the judgment of, of local authorities and the way they're dealing with crisis and how they feel that parents are putting the sort of the the red pressing the red button I see it as and saying actually we can't do more yeah um I'd say most of them are quite sympathetic um I did have one judge that was so sympathetic literally came into the hearing was like full blazing at the local authority how have you let it get to this point I've seen that they requested x y and z support um what to reassure the parents is it's not their fault blah 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 we then got a totally different judge on that matter who had a completely different spin on it. Um, I didn't do that hearing. A colleague did, and she rang me afterwards um, with a bit like, mm, this isn't what you were promised me. Um, and it was just, yeah, normally they are sympathetic. I don't come across many that aren't. Um, but for some reason, this one just had a completely different view to the first judge, and it completely threw us all. Um, but I think across the board, most, most get it. Um, because obviously they're used to dealing with um, the original care proceedings. And I suppose I used to deal with the original care proceedings until I started doing this seven years ago. Um, And I suppose once the final care order and placement order is made, we don't see anything past that. But when we've now flipped it, and obviously all I now do is adoption, you actually start thinking about it and actually think, yeah, you know what, everything that happened there that we were arguing about at the beginning has obviously caused these children all the issues and the trauma that they now have and have carried through their life. Um, so, yeah, I think it is turning people's mindsets. And, and judges, I think most judges do get it. Okay, good. Um, I have got another one, but it's not crisis related. 
So, and that's why I picked it, just because Al's giving me the dogs. <laughs> He's not really. Um, somebody's asked, uh, birth father has not been located during initial care proceedings, um, left when the mother was pregnant. Um, what rights does he have after adoption order and can contact be promoted? So the so they've had care proceedings. Yeah, so the child's been removed. Wasn't notified then, I'm presuming. They couldn't find him. Um, and then the adoption order's been made. Yeah. Uh, I'd be best asking my colleague Nigel. Is he, the only one I've ever known, he's had it, um, but it was um, international, um, which made it, I suppose, the adoption order's been made, the, the legal relationship's gone, whether there's any kind of claim I don't know in the fact that they didn't find him, but normally what courts have to be satisfied of is that all steps have been taken to try and locate them. Normally there's a disclosure from the DWP to try and find their last known address um, and they'll send the documents out to that last known address or get a personal server because I know in the cases that I have from prospective adopters, when we have one or other of the birth parents that we can't find, we have to show that we've done everything that we can to try and locate them. So as long as obviously they've satisfied that, then... I'm not really sure. The last bit of the question talks about um, whether contact can be promoted. And I suppose, isn't that, that would have to be based on an individual basis, really, on, on where the yeah. adopt that and, and where birth father is with that. Um, I don't think there's a legal stance, really, is there? Well, this is this relatively new thing about post, well, not relatively new, but um, about post um, adoption contacts. And obviously that avenue is, um there as such but how we'd how get through the legal um hurdles I'm not sure um mm-hmm. I suppose if they did want contact the first point would be to contact the local authority where the original care proceedings were as such um and go from there but um I'm not really sure where they how far they could take it okay can I ask a, a sort of a follow-on question in terms of you'd mentioned it earlier that actually you've been involved in circumstances where you've where families are looking at contact or contact is part of that that around the adoption order so what sort of reasons have you been drawn into and obviously I'm conscious you can't divulge anything personal and and the second part of that question maybe is as well one of the questions that we had from one of our, um, our groups was where families have disrupted and children have returned back to the care system can you support families to in instigate contact with their children who, who remain their legal children but are on a section 20 which is is that something you've been involved in or something you've got a view on so with the birth parents trying to re-establish contact uh, no when so as an ad- adoptive parent a child is returned yeah. to the care system and then yeah. they want contact with their child their, their yeah. adopted child um, then when when a local authority accommodates um, a child, they should always they have a duty to promote the contact between parents and the children. Um, and if it gets to a point of care proceedings where the local authority look at sharing parental responsibility with the parents, then contact's normally the main issue, um, especially if the parents aren't seeking rehabilitation. Then for us, it's normally the reasons why um, the local authority sharing parental responsibility and the contact going forward. Um, And I see a wide variety of contact to have some that have literally no contact whatsoever and some that might go to tea two, three times a week, have weekend contact. Um, So it is just massively different 
And it yeah. all depends on the family's needs and the relationships that they have with their children. Um, because sometimes we have children that just say, look, I don't want any contact um, whatsoever now. Um, but the local authority always have that duty to promote that contact. Yeah. Um, and what about the other way around where there's um, contact at, at adoption order, at the point of adoption order, where there's, um, do you ever get involved where there's contact established between birth family or members of the birth family and the adopted child? And that's sort of, that's put into law, sort of contact. Um, we've had a few, um, mainly siblings. Um, that's what we've um, been involved in, um, more than birth parents as such. But um yeah, siblings that might have lived together at one point or um, another sibling has come along um, and looking at what contact should be. And again, that varies. Some um, prospective adopters are quite open to saying, yes, if if it's another adoptive family, then we will liaise with that adoptive family and we'll have contacts. And I know some people um, that have quite regular contact um, with their birth siblings that are placed in another family. Um, but then some prospective adopters just say actually we're not open to that and um it's, it's quite a niche area really because you've got to look at the exceptional circumstances of it um to see whether the court the courts will grant contact orders in exceptional circumstances and that obviously goes on each case um but i'd say we've seen more contact orders or maybe not contact orders as such but it's set out in the order that this is hopefully what contact will be is normally being between the siblings um rather than birth parents um, because the, stand, the starting point for courts really was that if birth, um, prospective adopters were saying we're not open to contact between the birth parents and the children, the courts wouldn't really force them unless there were exceptional circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all goes on the merits of obviously what the relationship's been, if they've been having ongoing contact up until that point, because normally they would have a goodbye contact and that would be it um but some still have ongoing contact um so it all just goes on the merits of each one really yeah that, that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. fiona got a question have uh i just can't decide which one there's so many <laughs> um you you did just ask that one that was there um i suppose for me the the question of allegations come up you know yeah. how do i word this correctly so in children who've been traumatized, there is a, a, a tendency. There are there are issues with honesty sometimes. Oh God, I'm gonna have to be really careful here. And I think that the question's coming from somebody else. So they're, what they're saying is, is what can we do about allegations? You know, we we know that allegations happen a lot and they're horrific for both sides. So what is what is the sort of legal advice on how to protect? yourself we me and Nigel had this conversation a few weeks ago together um and we were saying that if allegations are going to come they're going to come um and obviously local authorities then have duties then to investigate those allegations um but legally there's nothing really that you can put in place legally that is going to stop those allegations. I suppose what we always say to clients is keep a diary. Um, that's, that's the only thing that you could do in terms of any incidents that happen, keep a diary. If there are any incidents, report it to a social worker. Some families have the police involved, just so that there is a clear record that if allegations are made further down the line, then hopefully you've got that to fall back on. Um, but there's nothing specific that you could implement to safeguard yourself against those allegations, unfortunately. 
And no, I know thanks. families. Sorry, I was going to say I know families that were there. You know, the police are involved, and as Fiona said, it's complicated, isn't it? Because we want to take children seriously. We've got to take them seriously, but we also need to be mindful of their vulnerability in mm -hmm. all of that and the potential of an allegation to unravel a whole family. And um, so do people come to you in the midst of allegations looking for yeah. whatever counsel support? Yeah. Um, what can I do? Um, normally when they do come to us, we normally say, actually, you're probably going to have to look at a criminal solicitor as well, because some will be questioned about it. Some will be cautioned. Some will be um, somewhere arrested about it. Um, so at that point, they then have to go to a criminal solicitor because that is beyond our remit. Um, and the two like go together at the same time. They might have us on, on the side of the family law side of things and then a criminal um, looking at the allegations if, if it gets to that serious point. Um, but yeah, we have many people say, look, we've been contacted by a social worker. They're looking at maybe Section 47 because this allegation has been made. Um, and all we say is you're just going to have to engage in it and be open and honest with it because you, the local authorities have this duty to do it. And when, if a child makes an allegation, they have to be taken seriously and they have to investigate it. Mm. I think section, the word, like, it, it's, it comes with a section. Section 47, it sounds terrifying, yeah. and actually it's not. And, and like, I've, I've done loads myself as a social yeah. And I think they need, you know, people need to be grounded by the fact that actually it's just an information record on what's happened, how's it happened, what people's views are, and what are we going to do next? Yeah. It sounds more scary than it is. And actually being transparent about things with the professionals sometimes backfires from what I've heard. But for me, being transparent's always worked for me. I, I will always tell the professionals in my children's life if something's happened so they know about it first. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really, really key, obviously, if you've got the right professionals around you. Um, I have another question. It's a bit of a weird one. Have you experienced where Local authorities use Section 31 of the Children Act to remove children from families when they're in crisis. Um, yes. That's out of parental control. Yeah, so Section uh, 31 uh, is the care proceedings that I've talked about in terms of local authorities sharing parental responsibility. Um, I've not had it often, but I have had it um, sometimes where we've requested section 20 and the local authorities reaction has been well actually we're going to issue care proceedings before we even accommodate the child um and some will say we want to remove them um some will start care proceedings but say we're so concerned but actually we want to keep the children at home um which again always baffles me um because they're so concerned but at the flip side they're not um because they want, they want to leave the child where they are um so yes we have had it um not often um, normally what happens first is the child is accommodation section 20 then the local authority will go on to um asking for a care order to share parental responsibility especially when um parents aren't seeking reunification um depend obviously depend on the, that used to be the way courts always viewed it that section 20 should be short term um if it was clear that a child couldn't return home um then the local authority should start care proceedings and share parental responsibility with um, the parents. But there was a case earlier this year um, that's been published that said actually sometimes Section 20 can work long term in some circumstances. Mm. Um, not all of them, but in some of them it can. Um, and I, I've known Section 20 work um, quite well for some families. Um, on the flip side, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes 
um, we do need to get to, to proceedings. Like I, say, like I said before, sometimes getting to proceedings is to get that psychological assessment and get a proper support, um, not support plan, a proper care plan for the child um, going forward. This is a sort of the doomsday question for a lot of families. Um, honestly, this, this is like an infomercial for you, isn't it? Ridley and Hall at the Adoption Legal Centre. Mm. Um, have you ever, have there ever been circumstances where ch- children who've no longer, adopted children who no lo- longer living with their adoptive parents looked to dissolve their adoption? Is that a thing? Um, I've had... I've had some adult, well, maybe like 18, 19 year olds that have said, um, um, I was accommodated and local authority now share parental responsibility. I want to do away with the adoption order. I don't want them to be my legal parents anymore. And normally it's crossed the threshold of being 18. Um, we've had that conversation with parents and um, not so many children, um, but actually, is there a way of dissolving um, the um, or revoking the adoption order? It's very, very rare um, that it happens. Um, very rare in fact I don't, I don't think there's that many cases out there where it's it's happened across the country um, because they will all, I suppose if, if the adoption order is taken away then the only people with parental responsibility would then be the local authority they would have no legal parents hmm. as such um, so yeah courts very rarely do it only in very exceptional circumstances and I've never well, had must, yeah I'm just I mean I am aware that there's some people who kind of are very you know, that they justifiably in some circumstances feel very aggrieved by the experience of being adopted because it's yeah. it's done without consent. It's a Yeah, yeah, it's no, a, I get that. It's a you know, it's a particularly it's a peculiar sort of mm. piece of legislation, isn't it? Does something done to a child that's lifelong. It is. Um and they have no choice or decision making in any of that. Um yeah. but like I say, normally we've we've had um obviously we couldn't advise them well we could we could just say look your option you haven't got any options now the, the adoption order um has been made but they're normally the end of the teen years 18 19 20 um when they've transitioned from childcare to, to the adult care saying actually i don't want this um hmm. but yeah courts will very very rarely do it well i'm really glad i was adopted and and, and i'm proud to be adopted and i think adoption rules but I just want it to be better for lots, lots, yeah. lots more generations to come. And I, and I agree with the evolution. We started this conversation with evolution, didn't we? The adoption is evolving, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I see there's still a place for it because some children, it isn't safe to stay with birth families mm-hmm. or or even in the, the sort of nucleus of birth families. And, and, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that, for adoption, and I wouldn't be with my children. And despite the fact we're in crisis, love is love and it is yeah. it's there isn't it do you know what I mean so yeah, yeah. um I think well that's what the adoption UK barometer um says isn't it about what support should be given um I think they say free support just basically forever because these issues crop up not just throughout childhood but in adulthood I don't think people are properly supported as such um and I think that there does need to be more that's done because um, a few years ago they were looking at taking away the adoption support fund and luckily that didn't happen. Um, but if they ever got to that point, that would be scary because I think actually they need to do the opposite. They need to be pushing more support into adoption rather than taking it away. Um, and I don't, I don't honestly don't know where it'll go. We'll have to see what we with generations and the governments to come. But I do hope it will get better. Um, it will do me out of a job, but if that means <laughs> the families get support, then obviously that's what matters, keeping these families together. Um but yeah, I hope that will happen. 
when, and how, I don't know, but I do hope at no. some point. Can I ask maybe a final question, which is totally a total curveball because I'm conscious we're coming up to an hour. And um, do you ever, do adopted adults come to you looking for support to get access to records? Um, years ago, um, I think I've had one too, um, but that was it. Um, so no, not really. I forgive forgive me but there is one more question that I know you can't answer but I feel like I should because they'd sent it to me and it's in relation to getting a birth uh, passport any advice or tips on how to get a temporary passport to travel we believe the birth parents may contest the adoption meaning it would be a long time before the adoption order is granted and would like to go on holiday to meet grandparents um, I'd speak to the local, obviously the local authority will have parental responsibility. I'm presuming there's, yep. I'm presuming here there's a care order or care and placement order. Um, your local authority, your social worker would be the people to speak about um, because there are children in care that obviously do have passports. Um, yep. And if children are taken out of the country, it has to be authorised um, by the local authorities. They have parental responsibility. Um, yeah, I'd speak to the social worker because obviously if you apply for a passport, it's going to be in a you, it'll be in a different name later on if the adoption order's made, won't it? Um, yeah. But yeah, the social workers should be able to tell them if they can do that and if they can, what the process is, whether it is the social worker that would need to do it. Um, because like I say, they would usually have to give permission. And it's just it's just dawned on me when I was a student social worker, I did it for a couple of um, young people who are in foster care and it's the most complicated process in the world and you have to you have to go and find professionals who've known the child for a set yeah. period of time. So often social workers say, oh, we can't do it. Yeah. It's a lie. You can. What they mean is I don't want to do it. You <laughs> don't want the whole process of doing it. Yeah, get the students to do it. Get the students to do it. Get, get the students. I actually went to the passport office and sat outside the door to get it done. I literally, I, it took me days. I would go and find. I had to go and find the head of service and sit outside of their door and get them to sign a document. Yeah, it was a proper mission. That's dedication. Well, it was. I was a student. I had nothing better to do. Um, well, um, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. And I feel like, is there anything that you wanted to say that we didn't ask you, or you know, anything that you wanted to point us towards? I think we've covered most of it. Um, what I would just say is that if there is any publications, any reports, anything on families in crisis, we're always happy to help with it because this is predominantly our work. And we want, not obviously legally we help people, but me, Tracy and Nigel are also soft in terms of how we also want to help people on a human level as well. We are we are all human. Um, I know that's not what people think about solicitors, but we are, um, I promise you. Um, so yeah, if any there are any reports anything like that we're always happy to help with that um because this is our day-to-day job unfortunately um not unfortunately in, in the fact that obviously we do want to help people but unfortunately we are having these conversations every single day um so um hopefully things will change maybe they will next time we speak um we will see um but no, i think we've covered everything um Excellent. And if there is anything we can help on you know where we are well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Fiona, for joining me as well, uh, standing for Scott. Um, we did admirably, much more entertaining, and a lot less lippy. Um, <laughs> um, and thank you, Sarah, for joining us. And um, I wish you all a, all a good evening. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.